Good morning, everybody. Good to see your face, what I can see of it. I'm gonna, you're, you're far enough away I can take off my mask. Um, it's good to be with you today. This is a, a, an interesting passage we're going to open up today. And it's uh, one I want you to think about uh, because God has begun a good work in you. And this is part, this chapter will hopefully enlarge the place of your tent as we strengthen the pegs and go a little bit deeper in the scriptures. Uh, it's not a passage that you tend to think about uh, or recall, but there's so much in this passage that we want to look at. And so what I want to share with you is we're going to kind of divvy this passage up for a couple of reasons. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to be a little professor and give you some teaching that today that will put things into place as we continue to think about what we're doing here at Chesterland Baptist and elsewhere. Uh, we are here because we want to learn what we believe, and we, re- we are here because we want to believe what we're learning, what we're learning. We are a learning community, and the particular issues for us is keeping the gospel of Jesus Christ center so that we will go and be the hands and feet. Now, I don't know if you know this, but for the American Baptists, the, 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 one of our mottos is, is that we are the hands and the feet of Christ. It's one of the things that we, we have uh, historically seen ourselves as being active servants in the world, but we're also the ears and the uh, mouth of Christ. So we have a message to convey. <clears throat> and yet as we uh, live in our world 2,000 years from Acts 16, we have similar challenges that Paul had, and we're going to get into those. And so as you go through this passage, you will have some questions that I hope you bring up and ask, as I will also bring up questions, because we are a learning community, and our challenge is the same. How do we take the good news of Christ into our secular, postmodern world so that people who say, I don't care what you believe, it's just about what I believe. And so we have this independent, silo mindset that it's me, myself, and I. It's what I believe, that's all that matters. And if I'm doing okay, I'm doing okay. I don't have to be thinking about what's around me, but we tend to be very private, privatized, uh, Christians who are passive for the most part, and we get institutionalized. And so I just, there's so many challenges for us, but we'll see that same challenge here in the New Testament. And uh, as we get into uh, the second missionary journey, you'll find that what Paul and uh, others encountered in their cultures are identical to the issues that we're dealing with today. And for that reason, I think it's my job to uh, equip you to have bold courage, humble courage, quiet boldness, but to have the tools where you would stand up and identify with Christ in such a way that you would be an attractive light and salt to bring people to Christ. But that's, that's, a, that's a whole other pot of coffee as we get into. But today we're going to look at this particular thing that I've entitled The Myths, The Mobs, and The Mission. Because we're going to go into the same tension that Paul had, as you see in Acts 16. So let me begin with this. 
for you who understand um, how this message, uh, you can read it up here on the screen. You understand clearly what I'm saying when you, you see this. Can you read that? You can't, that doesn't help you. Can't, Bob, can you read that? Okay, well, that, oh, it's Japanese. I'm sorry. Well, let me, let me help. I'll put it in the Romaji version. Ino naka no kawazu taikai o shirazu. Does that help you? Because I said the message to you. And so if I say it, that means you understand it, right? Ino naka no kawazu taikai o shirazu. You still don't get it. Well, isn't that interesting? Because it's the same way the non-Christian feels when you talk about the gospel. They don't get it. Because sometimes religious language doesn't translate into a non-Christian world view. And so their challenge is, how do you, how do you not distort or paraphrase or change it, but you want to keep the same message clean and move it into a, somebody, uh, another person's world? And so what this... What it means is this. A frog in the well doesn't know the ocean. It's a Japanese proverb. I love this. Because it, it, it shows you how limited we are in our worldview that we think uh, I'm in my world and that's all I am in, but we don't understand I'm not in my world. I am in my father's world, in my father's universe. I only see a very small piece. And yet when you move out of your world, you begin to see, oh, enlarging my place, enlarging my tent means to realize that there are 5,375 languages or so around the world. To think about the number of countries and people groups, the ethnos, that, that have not heard of Christ. When I was in Colombia, South America, I was in, in the back... Uh, I was three hours from Cali, Colombia, and I asked this uh, Guambiano tribe, have you heard of Jesus Christ? And they said, oh yeah, we've heard of that. That's a new soap detergent. And it was just that obvious. There was no comprehension of words and me until they see the gospel in you or me. But when you have these two when you have this idea that your world's going to encounter a different world, you're going to have worldviews colliding. And when that happens, there's going to be a battle. Because what you think should happen in your world and what another person thinks ha should happen in their world. So fish should be enjoyed, but not the way the cat is thinking about enjoying them. And so you have this different a frame of mind, and we're going to be talking about that today, to get into somebody else's frame of mind. As you'll see Paul moving out from Jerusalem, Israel, Hebrew frame of mind, he's going to go into a Gentile, pagan, a different frame of mind than he's normally affiliated with. And it's called culture. Crossing cultures. You know what the word culture means? The root is cult, and it means worship. Culture means worship, and therefore a culture is a representation of what that people group worship. It's their values, 
is their priorities. And so for America, it's freedom. We worship freedom. For the Chinese, they worship stability. You can see why with that many people, you can't have, you can't have disturbance because millions of people will die. So the interconnected rice fields and through the government, they have to have control so that there's stability just to keep functioning as a country. And therefore, there's a different approach in their thinking. But how, do you, how do you lead this country? In Japan, the, the primary value is harmony. You don't offend people. You respect and you honor people. These are core values. And what you need to understand is every country has core values. And that you can uh, appreciate the core values if you understand them, but you understand that these are the very things people will fight for, they will kill for, they will die for. These are the core cultural values. And, and so you have the cultural institutions, what a group of people conventionally agree upon, this is the way it's going to be done in our house, in our, in our land. And therefore, these are shifting values depending upon <clears throat> government and leadership. With the word occult, is abnormal or darkened or secretive worship. There are certain groups that meet together that worship have, they're not open, they're closed systems. But when you have worship and values mixed together, you have a compromised, a negotiated culture. You have, it's called syncretism. And syncretism, when you have a shaman in our Congress praying in the name of Jesus, you've got a blend of things that just, it doesn't match. It, there's something that doesn't fit when you, and so there's adapt, adaptations and adjustments. You think, what's going on? Because this isn't the way it's supposed to be done because there's tension when cultures collide. One of the hardest books <laughs> I've ever read was Anthony Thistleton's book. Don't, I don't recommend it because it's just uh, very dense and academic and Hard to read, but he's got some things I'm going to narrow down for you. But the, the, the title caught me. <clears throat> there are two horizons. And when you move cross-culture, when you enter into somebody else's world, you have to learn the language, one. But learning the language isn't enough. You know many international students come over here and they learn English, but they don't learn the American values. They, they pick up some things. But I understand this because when I was in Japan... <clears throat> I was an American in Japan having an American experience in Japan. And so I didn't understand the Japanese heart and soul until time after 15 years, I really began to see and honor that which they see and honor. But if I'm just having an American experience in that country, I haven't changed at all. But when I engage and understand their heart, their language, their soul, then you say, aha, I, I can respect and enjoy, but I move far beyond just language. Now, Thistleton, this is a blink summary, less than 15 minutes. Uh, uh, what, what Thistleton says is that there are four things, basically, and he's, and he's famous for the speech act, that there's a message that when you say something to people, it can change the way people think. 
You give a text, you give a word, you give a message. And so now there's a confrontation, an exchange of an idea. And that idea exchange is brought about by stories, testimonies. As you share your background and their background, there's a a meta-narrative when you draw others into rethinking and reattaching meaning to what people think. And therefore, that meaning exchange helps people to consider other ways of living. If you're a parent, you know this, when your teenagers grow up and they start visiting other people's homes and having overnights and they begin to see how different families live and they come back home, well, mom and dad, why don't we do, they they do, And, and teenagers begin to see different ways that families work. And so there's a comparison and, and trying to figure out what life is. My, my family does it this way, but they do it that way. And certainly you find differences as teenagers are trying to figure this out. But when the message <clears throat> has a meaning and you bring it together to a, a conversation, then there's a meeting where somebody begins to listen and learn. How, how do you put life together? What's life like over here in your corner of the world? And so as you listen and you are able to enter into somebody else's worldview and listen, listen, and love, love, and, and, and the point is not to fix them or compete or to, to control or impose. You're really trying to engage this other horizon. And so Anthony Thistleton would say, It really is about this exchange, this reception, this relational knowledge that's going back and forth in all of our discourse, conversation, interactions. But he notes every reader, every person brings a horizon of expectation that this is the way it's to be done. And they bring it to the text and they listen to what you say according to their filter, their cultural filter, their personality filter, their trauma filter, their, their whole world view. And for us, we understand that because it's a, we have a Christian world view. To summarize all that up, I put it in two simple sentences. And, and Thistleton would say this, it's the capacity of a text, of a message, to transform readers. But also understand there's a dynamic that the capacity of the readers to transform the text. And so you're in a tension. You really have to really listen well to communicate and to connect to get across. And therefore, what you've got are these two horizons. You've got the heart of God and you've got the heart of man. You have the word of God and you have the word of man. How does God connect to the human heart? Was going to be through a human heart. That's why Jesus Christ became a man, to communicate what godly living as a human, as a saved Christian, <clears throat> redeemed by Christ, understanding the Father, is going to bring about a word of hope. And you've heard me say before that when that word of God gets into the child of God, the Spirit of God makes him into a man or woman of God. There's a dynamic when the Holy Spirit speaks and humans listen, then there's transformation 
Well, <clears throat> we, start, <clears throat> we start these conversations. If we hear the gospel, sometimes we only hear it from a man-centered, an anthropological, a human-centered. And when I mention the word man, I mean man and woman together. It's just easier to condense those two for a time. But some people hear what God says only through a man-centered, world-centered filter. And I call that the BBS syndrome, where you're only looking at your own belly button system. And so if God's going to help me, then I'll consider it. But if he's not going to help me, I won't consider it. It's a man-centered issue as opposed to a theological, God-centered issue. But we have these two horizons because there is a separation that God uh, wants to communicate to man, but man doesn't want to communicate to God. And so there, because of sin, there's a separation between man and God. God has a plan to love you, to give you purpose, to give you security, to bring about a whole sense of well-being in your soul. And man says, I don't want that. I'll figure out, I don't need you, God. I don't need a crutch. I don't want to believe this fairy tale. And therefore, a lot of people live their life as though God doesn't exist. And for them, it is, it is as if he doesn't. But for us as Christians, we know we can exist. For Jesus said, you must abide in my word. If my word abides in you, then you'll have life. Then you'll have fruit. Then you'll know the truth. So all of that to say, Good night. What on earth was God thinking when he calls Paul and Silas to go overseas? Do you see the challenge that's before us in this passage is that God is doing something on earth for heaven's sake. I mean for heaven, for, not for the sake, for us. <laughs> so let me uh, test you on this one. Do you remember the three GCs of Scripture? I see your eyes rolling. The three GCs, what's the great commandment? What's that say? Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. How you love God is how you treat people. How you treat people is how you treat God. And therefore, this is the greatest commandment. It's the, it summarizes the whole Bible, the great commandment. And therefore, Jesus would say, you are far away from the kingdom, or you're close to the kingdom. There's a distance. What's the second GC? The Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples so that people learn how to love in all nations. Because whatever these disciples are, God wants them in every corner of the world. Go into all nations. Go. Move. Get out of here. And tell people about the Lord. And not just about the Lord, but about the, the way the Lord thinks about you and the way the Lord's thinking and his horizon brings a value about life and humanity and that you can't get apart from him. But what's the third GC? The great community is the church. Because it's in this church that God renews and transforms a brand new kind of society. It's called the kingdom of God. And therefore these 
kingdom values, the kingdom culture is, are the driving core, central, meaningful priorities that we want to give our lives to. And therefore, these three GCs, the great commandment, the great commission, the great community, you have a restored humanity, a redeemed people that love the Lord. Now, the Jews said, the Samaritan woman said, well, you Jews say this, but we think this. And so there was a difference about how they thought God was going to do the work in the world. <clears throat> Similarly, Paul said, I become like those I'm trying to reach. To all men, I become all things. And there's another pot of coffee on this one. It's, we'll get into this later. I just want to highlight it here because this is about who you are and how you relate to people who are different than you, who you are and how they relate. But Paul says, I change but I don't forfeit the gospel. And therefore, here we are on this long trek. As we get into Acts 16, <clears throat> you'll notice on the map, this green arrow line is where, where Paul and Silas, being sent from Antioch last week we saw, that they go up to this little area of Lystra, Derby, and Iconium, north uh, or south uh, east of Turkey. But notice this, they're, they're walking around the mountains there in, in, in uh, Turkey, and those are the churches of the seven churches of Revelation. We'll come back to that in a minute, but just, you can't see this very clearly, but on this one you can. They cut through uh, Paulus from Tarsus, and he moves from Cilicia, and there's Lystra and Derby. but you'll see this two areas. Right in the middle you have Galatia and Phrygia. Important because in the next passage in, in Acts, he says, They went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been prevented by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now, look where that is. So, Paul is saying, The Holy Spirit is saying to Paul, Don't go into this area. Prevented, hindered. Stop, Paul. You're not going there. And so, you get this idea that Paul. Paul was walking through, and the Holy Spirit was guiding Paul, preventing Paul, guiding, preventing. We'll look at that in a minute. But I wanted to point out in this passage something significant that you might not see. So quickly, it says, they went through the region. And in red, you'll see, when they came to the border of Mysia, uh, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of God did not allow him, allow them. Do you ever wonder why God prevents you from doing certain things? Have you ever had those times when you wanted to move this direction and God said, uh-uh? You ever had that experience? Some of you know this story. Some of you don't. That in 1993, I had been thinking and pursuing going to Bogota, Colombia. I was in Cali, Colombia to learn Spanish. And I knew Spanish, and I knew that God was working in my life to always be involved in different people groups. In this case, I thought God wanted me to go to uh, Colombia to join the, the navigators. And so I went uh, to Bogota, I went to Caracas, looking at South America because they knew uh, my background was in counseling and in Spanish, and they knew they needed somebody down there to help them. I went there and I thought, eager to go, willing to go, 
But when I went on that uh, trip to explore those cities, something inside of me said, no, I, and, and I loved it. I could have easily taken Sandy and, and we would have moved to, to Bogota and, and, and I, I would retire in Bogota. It's a wonderful place. If you're not into drugs, you're not into the military, you won't have any trouble because you never see them there. At least that's what I was told. So it's kind of like the mafia. They're somewhere out there. And, or, you know, but, but, but the point is, I, I thought I would be open to that, but God said, no, Jerry. And after a week in both of those cities, I thought, I don't, I don't understand this. Because I had prepared for that. And I got home and I got a call from Japan. Hello? Is this Jerry DeHart? Yes. Well, this is Dr. Murakawa. And I'm calling you from Aizu Wakamatsu. Uh, you're calling me from where? Uh, Aizu Wakamatsu. Aizu? No, Aizu. Aizu Wakamatsu. Oh, where's, I'm sorry, I, who are you? And I got this call from out of the blue, inviting me to come to start a university with some friends. But as a, as a researcher, teacher in a language department for computer science. Sandy's on the other side of the room listening. Who is that? Japan. Uh, would you like to come to Japan and be a professor at the university? And um, I thought, huh. That's what a, my personality type does when I'm thinking. I think outside the box, I go, huh. And Sandy's over in the corner going, no, no, no. I don't, I don't like to eat sushi. I don't like to wear kimonos. I don't like to speak. So on that phone, I thought, you know, the Lord, uh, I, I am open. And uh, lo and behold, I went over three months later to visit this place and going back in time to place Aizu Wakamatsu. Sometimes God prevents us from moving in one direction, shuts a door in order to open another direction. Have you had that experience? You've had that experience of moving your house. You were told this and that God is doing this way. And so it's, it's figuring out how God's working in your life. I'm telling you, that is not for beginning Christians. That's for somebody who's been in the Word, growing and learning discernment, learning how to be obedient, trusting, and all the little things you go through, God is preparing you in order for you to do that. Sometimes God prevents us from moving because he has our personal protection in mind. You'll see that in Scripture. Sometimes he'll move people in interrupting your plan because he has their immediate need in mind. Sometimes, sometimes God will give you a blessing so that you can give the blessing in mind. Sometimes he's got something for us to learn. That I need to meet this person. I need to be in that place. I need to go through that fire in order to learn forgiveness. In order to gain wisdom. And be a better man who loves better. Sometimes God has purposes that he's not telling us until we get there. Like Peter didn't know until he went to Cornelius' home. Oh, now I understand was the passage. But God calls us sometimes to get away from things, to have a season of rest, a season of reflection. But no matter what is happening, know that God is at work and he has battles that he wants to prepare me and you to fight. But Paul was on the move. 
with Silas. And so here's what Henrietta Mears said. She was the Sunday school queen who had at one time 600,000 kids in Sunday school. She was the one that was started the Presbyterian movement for Sunday school in that church. She says, it's difficult to steer a parked car. <laughs> That's good. So get moving. In Japan, there was a, pros- there was a ministry to prostitutes in Tokyo. And uh, the lady who was a missionary from, Brit- from Britain said, I was here during the war, and we called out the, the prostitutes in the Shinjuku area when the soldiers would come in, and they would minister to the prostitutes until the government said it's illegal. And so she went up to a city north called Aizu Wakamatsu. And that's where I met her. When I met her, she was 83 years old. In that storefront in Aizu Wakamatsu area, had seven people in that church that Sunday. Uh, There was Sandy and I, uh, Matthew and John. Four of us went to that, and there were four other people in that room. It was a front room. It was her, her daughter, and two other ladies who were 81 and 80. And the missionary stood up that day and said, Ladies, Moses was called into the ministry at the age of 80. It's time for us to get going. you got to get moving. So if the Spirit of God is moving... uh, I hope you're listening, because sometimes it's hard to understand how God is leading. If you've you've never understood what that means, if you've been stuck spiritually, I just want to give you this side note. If you feel like you're making a mistake or you're confused, join the group, because sometimes it's not easy, and so you need to understand that God is doing something by opening doors and closing doors. But when God isn't moving, you think God is not leading, how do you handle that? Psalm 40. Go back and put that in your note. Read Psalm 40. Because that's when David said, I waited patiently for the Lord. Don't move ahead of him. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. We all have to wait. Everybody has to wait. You go to Giant Eagle, you have to wait. You go to virus vaccination, you have to wait. But he says, I waited patiently. But not just waiting patiently, because some of you can be nonchalant, and you got a lot of patience, but he didn't say you waited patiently. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord to move. Therefore, you don't move until you have the Lord's leading. And that's what David said. And when he got it, he says, in the school of the book, while I wait, it is written of me, I delight to do your will. Before I have to move out, I'm going to do the will of God right where I am. Psalm 40. With the understanding that David wrote about in Psalm 32, he understood that God will counsel David personally. I will counsel you with my eye upon you, and I will instruct you in the way which you should go. Well, these are the themes that, the values that the Lord wants us to know and experience, because if you're paying attention to the Lord, or God brings in people, I hope you're listening and learning, whether through the deacons or the deaconesses or your friends or your neighbor, but God can use anything to get your attention. But keep moving. 
keep moving that car going in the same direction and God will steer to make sure you will get to where you need to be. So, notice I said earlier that they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. And here you have these words in red, they, 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 they. Who's writing this book? The book of Acts? Luke. The good Dr. Luke. And this is something you're going to pass over, and so I'm going to highlight it for you, because this is the first time there's a shift, and pay attention to this, it says in Acts 16, 15, they passed through Mysia, they went down to Troas, they did, and they, during the night Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia, Greece, come over here and help us. Notice, Paul had a vision. Paul was probably in prayer, seeking the Lord, waiting on the Lord to move, and he got direction. But notice what 16.10, and this is, you might want to put a little circle around this verse, because this is the first time Luke enters into the passage. Notice what he says, and after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Put that car in gear and go. Concluding that God had called, notice, not Paul, us. There's the great community. And when the leader has a vision, Luke picked up Paul's vision, says, this is my vision, I'm with Paul, this is our vision. And so they, they all went. Luke, uh, Paul, Luke, Silas, and Timothy. The four of them now had a team. And they left because God had called us to preach. Now, it's one thing for you to sit in a church and say, it's the job of the pastor to preach. But let me tell you, it's your job to preach. It's your job to communicate. It's your job to go cross-culture. It's your job to enter into the world. Not my job, it's our job. So we all do this because we all belong to the kingdom. And the kingdom says, the king says, go. If you were to follow this team of four, you get to Troas and you take off on the boat from the corner of Troas. And as you move over there, he's going to go into a couple places that we're going to spend some time in this spring. We're going to be going to the, the, the city of Philippi immediately, but later on, we're going to go to Thessalonica. But as they go to Troas and they get on the boat, Paul has to go across the sea. And this little this little arrow says, you'll see it goes right to Neapolis. That's not accurate, actually. According to the text, they stop at a place right before. It's called uh, Samothrace. Uh, Samothraki depends upon which, uh, the old, old version. But the new, the new place is Samothraki. But you'll notice it in this map. It's that little island off to the left. And so they stopped at that island at the end of the day, spent the night there on that island, and then they scooted over to Philippi. Now notice, Neapolis is right there in the corner of that bay. It's eight miles away. This is the seaport of Philippi. And you know what happens in seaports. A lot of ships come in. And you'll find that in Corinth, and you'll find it in different places. But I just wanted you to show, just so you understand, that this is the place where the first church in Europe was planted. This is the place for the first convert 
was made. Paul is now moving in a territory that is far away from Turkey, far away from the Jewish synagogues that would pepper all through Asia, through Galatia, and he's moving farther and farther away. There are not many Jewish people out here. But as he gets into this city, as he move into this little island, this is what this looks like now, it's a great resort town, a little romantic town, a good getaway, but not a commercial place. It's still got the old flavor of, of Greece. But, but this is called the island of the great gods. Why? Because this is a volcano. And not only is it a volcano, it's a wild place where it's overrun by goats. They eat more goats there than they eat fish. Imagine that there's three, uh, 100,000 goats to 3,000 humans. That's strange. It's a different world. You're in a faraway city. And therefore, in this place, I'm going to open up just the beginning of the story with two women, two stories, and one you know about, the one you don't know much about. The one you know about is a woman called Lydia. Remember Lydia? As you go back through the passage, Lydia is from the city of Thyatira. Where on earth is Thyatira? I thought you'd be asking that. So I said, let me go back. Now notice she was a transplant. She was from, she was from the place that Paul passed over. Thyatira is south in the place of Turkey where Ephesus is down there. These are the seven cities of Revelation. Thyatira is one of the churches. But there were a lot of Jewish people populating that area. Lydia said, I'm going to go make a business. And for some reason, we don't know the story, she left her home and she was now pursuing a business, international business, as a seller of purpose. But one thing about this wealthy woman that she had as a core value... She had a business, but her business did not have her. And therefore, she was a God-fearing, seeking Gentile who had been exposed to a lot of the Jewish thinking. But in Philippi, there weren't many Jewish, actually, there were no Jewish synagogues. And therefore, what we know about Lydia is this, that she was a textile merchant. She made those purple masks like Bob and, and, and Pat are wearing. Well, she didn't make the mask. She has a seller of purple. Um, whether she was a single woman, a divorced woman, uh, a widow, uh, there's no mention of a man in this woman's life. So we don't have much to go on, except that she was successful and that she had a large house and she had servants and probably women who worked for her. She may have had her family with her, her siblings, her parents, but she was a God worshiper. Somehow she'd been exposed and understood that there was a God in heaven that was in charge of it all. But as she went overseas and she had a cross-cultural experience, she too recognized that their gods weren't like Jehovah. And so she was more attracted to Jehovah. And she was praying and seeking. Her car was moving in the direction. And whenever a human heart is moving towards the Lord, let me tell you, the Lord's moving towards that human heart. God looks to and fro throughout the whole world, seeking those hearts who are completely his to strengthen them and draw them in. God's spirit is at work doing that in, in Lydia's. And it says in the passage 
that God opened her heart. Because Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy had gone there earlier in the week, they were going around and they found out there were no synagogues there because you need 10 men, 10 Jewish men to have a synagogue. There weren't 10 Jewish men in the city, maybe one or two. Clement is mentioned later on in Philippi. You'll hear about him. But there's a lot of women, at least around Lydia. And from there they went to Philippi, verse 12 says, and, and, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia. It's a Roman colony. And Paul says, we, Luke says, we were staying in this city for some days. So during the week they were doing scouting around, but they had been called to Macedonia. And here was Paul and the team. And on the Sabbath day, what do you do on the Sabbath when there's no church? Besides, there's no internet. You can live stream. So you go to the river. Why? Because rivers were places where they would build a synagogue and they would look out the places because you need places for baptism, places to wash feet. You need a source of water. And this is where Lydia took some women and they prayed at this place. On the Sabbath day, we went outside uh, outside the gate to the riverside where we we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. This is Paul talking. So Paul's moving in prayer. God's leading him in prayer. Lydia's praying. Other women are praying. And guess what happened? We sat down and we began speaking to the women who had assembled. All of a sudden, the woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple, was listening. The message was getting across, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. That's what God does. God opens people's hearts. When you cross cultures, God opens the cultures to hear the message of God. Well, the Lord opened her heart, and I'm just going to conclude with this one, part of the story and leave you hanging. You may want to throw a shoe at me. But when she and the members of her household were baptized, probably in the very same river, she invited us to her home. Now this is strange. Uh, unusual for internationals to be that open, but she had hospitality and she was secure. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. I bet that probably would have broken a lot of laws in Israel, but probably... In Philippi, it wasn't a big deal. She persuaded us. She was a strong woman. She, she wasn't let them get away. But once we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit which she predicted the future. And this story I'll save for next week. There are two women that Paul starts the ministry with. Why? Because these two horizons had two individuals that God wanted to bring together. Likewise, God's doing the same thing in your life and my life right here in Chesterland. There are people God wants to move you to. There are people God wants to have them move into your life. If we're listening to the Lord and learning how to, this cross-cultural communication works, you'll see God at work. So that's why we pray, open our eyes, and we will go. We will be the hands and feet of Christ. We will go to enter into another horizon. But we'll go because the Spirit of God leads us and we'll be obedient to that. Let's put it on pause. We'll continue the story next week because it's fascinating.
Didn't it? But know this, that what God has done in this team, in this city, God can do for us as well in this city. Let me just encourage you to ask, seek, and knock. Keep in prayer and follow the Spirit, moving in the same direction. Let me pray. Lord, take these words. Your word does not return to you void without accomplishing what you want. So, Father, work in our hearts to help us understand how to get this frog out of the well and into the kingdom. Father, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.